Hello, and welcome back to Edie's Big Brexit Questions podcast series. This is a series of mini podcast episodes where the ED editorial team discusses the ramifications of Brexit in relation to key areas of the green economy. This is part three of our six part series. The first episode saw Sarah look at resource sufficiency with the ESA, while the second focused on biodiversity and natural capital with Friends of the Earth. Both of those pieces are available to listen to or download via the ED website right now. I'm ED's content editor Matt Mace and I'll be steering today's episode which will focus on the post-Brexit outlook for the renewables sector, regardless of what deal, if any, is agreed later in the year. The Renewable Energy Association have been a prominent voice in the growth of various renewable energy sources in the UK for some time, and we should now be joined by James Court, the Policy and External Affairs Director um, at the Renewable Energy Association, right now on the phone. Uh, James, uh, thanks for coming in on this call today. Hi, Matt. No, cheers for having me. And um, obviously the, the whole point of these um, these podcast episodes is to, is to get a sense of where the, the sector, in this case renewables, um, has kind of come from since that referendum uh, vote a few years ago. And, and obviously a lot of time has passed since the referendum to the point we're at now, even though uh, a deal still hasn't yet been agreed upon yet. But from what you've seen within the renewable sector over the kind of two-year Brexit uncertainty period, as it's been called, um, how has it impacted uh, the sector's outlook in terms of uh, renewables uptake in the UK? Yeah, no, sure. I mean, it actually seems like a long time ago, and this all gets brought back to certain things just, I suppose, to hit you overhead. I've got a, 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 a new sort of parliamentary and media affairs assistant, and she's been working in industry now for about just over a year. And she asked me, like, last week, so what was Parliament like before Brexit? And I'm like, oh, God, yeah, it's sort of been three years and you've never known normal times. And it is sort of getting just some of the day-to-day stuff. It's becoming quite difficult to get meetings with MPs, obviously a huge amount of time being taken up with civil servants. Um, it is sort of hard to remember when we all used to moan about there being an energy bill every sort of year. Uh, and we haven't really had any movement on a lot of issues now for quite a long time. Um, I suppose... Brexit specifically, there has been a huge slowdown in deployment. I mean, we used to have, we would bring out our annual jobs and deployment review. Um, the green economy, as we called it, was going at nearly over 9% growth a year, which is much bigger than the rest of the economy. We've now seen that slow down to just about 3%, and some sectors like solar. Um, both in terms of jobs, deployment and investment, are now going at before 2012 levels. Now, <clears throat> can that all be pointed at with Brexit? Now, I think there's some probably domestic um, policy reasons for that too. But there's no doubt that a lot of the international money, a lot of the uncertainty it's caused, has definitely had a dampening uh, effect on the market, and we can just see that in uh, in the deployment numbers. Um, I think it's EY that do the, the kind of annual attractiveness um, survey in terms of countries for for renewables as a, as a thriving market, and and the UK's kind of uh, yo-yoed in and out of the top ten over the last couple of years um, in terms of it being an attractive market for investors for renewables. Uh, it's partly kind of attributable to, to the falling costs in technologies of the fact that investment in renewables has fallen as well. But but yeah, as you, as you kind of mentioned, there's there's clearly um, a, a slowdown in the sector. So you know, I mean, what yeah. what can UK policymakers 
start doing to to kind of boost that trajectory again? I mean, in, in, in regards to, to Brexit, the clearest sort of signal would be a very clear intention to continue in the internal energy market without sort of being too flippant or flippant or if if we were to stay inside the internal energy market or something akin to that, very little would change. Um, for at, at least on the policy side, we would still be uh, signed up to the 2030 targets. We'd still have all of the regulations around interconnectors, for instance, or some of the definitions, the Red Two uh, targets, and the Red Two again, all of the plethora of uh, regulations and rules that come along with that. So day to day, if we were still inside the internal energy market, for our little sliver of the economy, the world wouldn't look hugely different, or at least energy-specific issues wouldn't look hugely different. I'm sure there'd still be some issues, uh, sort of wider economy issues. Um, so that would be, I, I suppose, a, a huge relief. Um, I suppose away from Brexit, we are coming to an end for subsidies. Obviously, the feed-in tariff is now closed. Uh, the RHI is coming to an end, and some technologies like AD now has effectively come to an end. Um, so some type of idea, some type of vision that can be backed up with hard policies of how we're going to start decarbonizing. We're already looking like we're going to be short on the fourth and fifth carbon budgets. Um, there is a huge policy gap that we are going to see in the next decade, uh, and not that many policies at the moment to replace that. So I know businesses always call for, for certainty, but I really do think some of the warm words and shouldn't be underestimated. There are people within government and government ministers and certainly um, MPs who care very deeply about this. And the, the language is unrecognisable from a few years ago. But we do need this step to start being backed up by actual policies. I thought that the Chancellor's announcement on um, green gas, some sort of green gas obligation in the 2020s, that's great. I mean, that's a non-subsidy route that will stimulate the market and give companies a really clear uh, direction of where we need to go. And I think it's a low-hanging fruit and no, all of the cliches. It's, no, it's a low-hanging fruit, it's no regrets, and it's something we'll definitely need by 2050. So policies like that are actually really helpful. Uh, I think the industry's moved on a lot from just wanting direct and very easy subsidies, uh, but we still need some sort of support, as I think everybody in the energy industry does. Uh, nuclear, gas, nothing is going to get built without some sort of government intervention. And I think we've seen the huge success of offshore wind um, with both the certainty of CFD auctions coupled with the new sector deal. Um, we've seen that. That has had a huge impact on the costs of offshore wind going down. Uh, we've seen investment come in when it comes to some of the turbine manufacturers and some of the wider supply chain, uh, and that's having a real impact. If we could have that type of um, ambition for the wider renewables economy, I think we'd be in a very good good place. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the, the offshore sector um, deal, and, and it's quite easy to view government as a whole around Brexit as it's kind of pretty much stopping dead in its tracks. But since since referendum vote, uh, the clean uh, growth strategy, the industrial strategy, and of course, uh, the uh, the CFD and, and various other sector deals have been announced. Um, a lot of the criticism around them is that they're more aspirational than uh, than targeted. And is, is it a sense that actually those 
kind of real tangible targets from government as to say, this is where we want the industry to be by 2030, 2040 onwards, would really help spur spur the renewables market? Definitely. But, but as I said, I mean, there is not a lot of protein on the, the skeletons that they have announced so far. But from what we can see, I mean, there are some really positive things going out. And I think as, a, as an industry, we can occasionally look a bit too sorrowful. I think we should be celebrating both the industry achievements and sort of working with government on what they've announced so far. I think what we've achieved in the uh, power side, which is going from almost a standing start in 2008 to now consistently over 30% of the grid being provided by renewables, that's a phenomenal achievement as, a, as, a, as an industry. Now, if you're going to be snide, you could say that, that some of that was done uh, sort of in spite of some of the government moves, and certainly there have been lots of, if not negative, then suboptimal things happening since 2015. But I also think the government quite right, you can point to a lot of uh, successes, and certainly the banning or the statement to ban coal power stations has had a huge impact. Uh, I think we were one of the first countries out of the, out of the gate to try and announce a ban, on, a ban on internal combustion engines, although I think we could probably see a bit more of an ambitious target, or at least being moved forward a bit from here. Um, and some of the papers that have come out, some of the work they're doing on flexibility and on smart energy, um, the language is to be honest, you, would, you, you couldn't believe that you'd be hearing, a, especially a conservative um, business secretary, start talking about the green investment as not just a hindrance, uh, it's not a hindrance to the UK economy, it is an active boost to the UK economy. This is a huge shift in thinking that we've seen in Parliament. Um, but on the other hand, we would, with a little bit more action uh, would go a long way on this. And it's, it's really easy to basket renewables up as a, as a sector, as, as we've kind of done for the purpose of, of this episode. Um, but it, from a government perspective, it's quite clear that they're, they're putting a lot of their eggs in, in the offshore basket. But um, yeah. I know the REA has done a, a lot of work on kind of bioenergy um, quite recently, for example. Is there any kind of um, renewable sources or technologies that perhaps aren't getting enough uh, policy attention right now, which could help spur the market? Absolutely, and I should also probably point out uh, to the listener that uh, REA had absolutely nothing to do with the offshore wind deal. That was all renewable UK, uh, and they've done a phenomenal job. Um, but yes, no, we represent everything but wind, so I don't know what that says about how I do my job. <laughs> but um, certainly we represent sort of the solar industry, the bio bioenergy, uh, as well as some of the newer clean technologies coming through. So we've got an EV now, we've got an EV group that's going from strength to strength, looking at charging and looking at how that's going to fit into the future energy market. We've got energy storage group for the last sort of three years. And again, we've seen some huge successes in, in that department. It may not have lived up to the initial hype, but we are certainly seeing some uh, very exciting things coming through in that market. Um, but there are, I think I have members who have legitimate grievances. If you were in the solar industry right now, you would be feeling um, pretty bruised by some of the things that have come out. Um, and certainly if you're in the bioenergy sector, you've always felt a little bit unloved. Um, and the bioenergy world is doing an awful lot. And a lot, a lot of the successes we've had in the last six, seven years have come from uh, sort of bio resources, especially in the sort of heat and the power side, um, and have a huge, huge, huge uh, offer um, to give in the next 30 to 40 years. So 
Um, yeah, those those two sort of particular uh, sectors have been quite hard hit, and as the rest of the world, certainly when it comes to solar, is really steaming ahead. Mm. We've put the brakes on, and it's a technology that I think people like. It's a, a very cheap technology and getting cheaper all the time. Um, and is something that we could really start pushing forward on. I mean, things like if the days of the feeding tariff are gone, we're certainly seeing some interesting um, replacements, and we're going to be seeing more of them as um, retailers start seeing how they can package up, I suppose, not just solar for homes, but actually have it all fit together. So how does how do solar panels fit in with storage? How does that fit in with some smart technology devices? And I think it's it's such a fascinating and such an exciting area in the next two to three, four years. You're seeing how some of the more innovative retailers and innovative companies are going to start putting together all of these um, these new technologies. And the smart home in three to four years, uh, we're going to be seeing sort of lots of virtual power stations, a lot of demand response. Uh, and some really, really sort of advanced things with data and the, I think the days of being sold pounds per megawatt hour, uh, probably sort of for, for a certain segment of uh, homeowners, are going to come to an end. I think we are going to be starting seeing a lot of things packaged and bundled together, which is a hugely exciting thing, but is obviously challenging uh, when it comes to certain areas. But the market's going to be changing very quickly in the next four to five years. And and for for that market then just just finally um, in in terms of getting it to to the best it can be what what is the kind of best case scenario of, of a Brexit deal look like for for the renewables um, sector whether that's the the companies that are kind of um, operating within the renewable sector or end user businesses that are looking to tap into some of those technologies. I mean, as I said, being inside the internal energy market and having those external goals which are quite easy to understand would give a lot of confidence. I mean, we're one of the very few countries and we're the first country to have a climate change act, but it's quite difficult to sort of pin down the government on achievement on that. There are sort of these theoretical policy gaps where we're coming up to 2020 now and we have beaten our power target of, I think it was, God, I used to know this off the top of my head, but just over 30%. Uh, transport had to be at 10% and heat had to be at 12%. Well, we're at 2% for transport and just over 6% for heat. It's quite an easy to understand sort of measure and matrix of, of what countries are doing and we're certainly falling behind. So clarity and an additional sort of if you like, a double lock on some of those targets uh, would be very beneficial. Um, and nobody knows how the Brexit sort of thing is going to pan out. And there are so many different options still. I think it's one of the reasons why even some of our largest companies now, they've had to stop trying to war game what's going to happen because it could be anywhere from the hardest of hard Brexits to you know, even potentially staying in and everything from a soft Brexit and every other type of uh, possibility in between. It's very difficult for our members um, to understand how can you sort of say, right, we need to prepare for X, Y, and Z when it could be black, it could be white or any shade of grey. And also, by the way, the time frame may be from anywhere between two weeks to two years, three years. So it's impossible for companies to actually try and guide their way through this. Um, on the plus side, if we were going to leave, some of the stuff coming out of DEFRA is some of the most exciting policy. I mean, the waste and resources strategy is, could be genuinely sort of pivotal for that industry. Uh, the environment strategy, 25 or environment plan, is again very ambitious. I think Michael Gove's really 
grab some of these issues and is, and is pushing it forward in a way that we haven't seen coming forward. Uh, so an idea of completely changing how some of our farming uh, practices are done, especially within the bioenergy sort of sphere, could be really positive. So, you know, there are some positives that could come out or some sort of, um, yeah, there could be some really interesting stuff that comes out if we are outside of Europe and have a little bit more freedom in some of our own domestic policies. However, <laughs> do you trust the British government of any colour or hue in the next 10 years? That I'm a little less certain about. Yeah, trust, uh, it seems to be a bit of a deficit, certainly amongst the policymakers at the moment. Um, it does seem like there's a, a lot to still iron out over the coming months. And as much as I'd like to talk more about it, we are out of time for this episode. So, um, James, thanks again very much for your time. No, thank you. Thank you for the series. It's going to be really interesting. And um, thank you also to those who are listening. And if you haven't already, please do check out the ED website, iTunes or Spotify to listen to our previous Big Brexit Question podcast to find out how various areas of the green economy are coping uh, with the utter confusion that is Brexit. Well, until next time, it's goodbye. <laughs>